Welcome to the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about histogram-based tools we have to measure SLOs and error budgets. We would like to thank 42 Lines for sponsoring this episode. 42 Lines is a DevOps consulting firm specializing in observability, cloud migrations, service reliability engineering, cost control, security practices, and team mentoring. Kickstart your SRE journey with the experts at 42lines.net. So, Jack, what is a service-level objective? Why, Jared, (laughs) I'm so glad you asked, because that sort of underpins our entire discussion about histogram-based tools and stuffs. So SLO's service-level objectives are popularized by uh, the Google SRE book, which came out in... 2015, 2016. And if you're in the IT field, you've definitely heard about service reliability engineering and how that is really reshaping what operations used to be into a more dynamic, more quickly moving, more scientifically driven profession. One of the things that SREs champion a lot are using service level objectives to measure your services. So you have a consistent way of looking at each and every service that any person can come across and look at and have some intuitive level of understanding. Any IT team, any developer team, folks from management, C-level folks. How are they different from service level agreements? So there are three sort of the three sort of different concepts in this space. There's service level indicator, which is more or less a metric, a time series. Um, and that those key performance indicators, really similar overlapping concepts there, those are used to build service level objectives. Service level objectives are goals for how you want your service to behave, how you expect your service to behave. Those service-level objectives look a lot like and read a lot like SLA agreements, if you're familiar with sort of that terminology. Um, Service-level agreements within A are usually legal or contractual, maybe social agreements that you have as a team, as a business, as a service provider, with whoever your customer, your users are. And that agreement, that SLA, is informed by your SLOs, but is probably a little more generous as it may form the basis of, of, a, con- of a contract between you and your customer. So an example of this would be your ISP promises your business internet account that their their gateway latency is going to be under... A threshold and they promise that it will be under the th- that threshold for a specified percentage of the time and that's the service level agreement the objective is to exceed that agreement the, the objective is to have better service than that and then the service level yeah, indicator internal goals are probably higher than what they promise their customers yeah and then the service level indicator is the actual measurement of latency at the gateway or whatever the metric is yeah, it is latency okay so your service level objective, your service level agreement, you're kind of looking at 
that indicator, that key performance metric, as sort of the base metric. And there's three specific ways you triangulate uh, that that indicator to form a solid sort of measure and understanding of performance. That is, knowing a threshold above the threshold is bad, or maybe below the threshold is bad, but you have your, your historic threshold. You have a time window that you're looking at, and then you have your 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 goal of of how much success you want to see, like ninety five percent, ninety nine percent. People talk about three and five nines, um, as in ninety nine point nine nine, whatever percent. And there's even various um, websites out there that you can type in, you know, how much downtime is, does five nines allow. And you can see, hey, that only allows for like one minute of downtime per year. See if I can find those for the show notes. But it's the indicator. It's the threshold. It's the time window and that goal of how much success you want to see. And of course, it the closer and closer you get to 100% of setting your SLO at 100%, the more and more energy and effort and software engineering expertise that takes. It's sort of like the closer you get to the speed of light, the more energy it takes. Well, I, w- I just looked up your numbers for, for five nines. So if you're promising five nines over the course of a year, that's five and, five and a quarter minutes a year that your service can be outside of its, its promised bounds. Per day, that's 864 milliseconds. How long does it take you to spin up an EC2 instance? <laughs> so the more nines you promise, the harder and harder it is to hit. So five nines is a real serious promise. Yeah. And for some things, it's not good enough. And really, 100% is totally unrealistic, just like it's pretty unrealistic to expect travel at the speed of light. Five nines, you know, is telecom grade, military grade, sort of state-funded uptime guarantees. That's really out of reach for a lot of startups or even a lot of big businesses, even near the cloud providers. So setting your goal to something that's reasonable and achievable um, is is really important because there, there are other advantages to, you know, figuring out where that is and starting off with can we make 95%? Do we hit 95% regularly? And it's and these are your internal goals. You can adjust them as you see fit to better match what your expectations are, your users' expectations are. Is there a et cetera? Is there a good time window that most people would use or is 30 days a good start or is it better to look at maybe like a week or what's a good time window to use? Most SLAs, contractual agreements, are kind of in the 30-day range. So I see that as a pretty common method of sort of measuring performance or measuring how much resources you're using like for a, a SaaS service. You might use a percentile of resources over a 30-day window for your for your billing window. Um, I've definitely seen and definitely written um, SLO 
goals that were look back over a day, look back over a week, look back over 12 hours. Um, being able to play with these knobs a bit uh, help tune how complex the, the math is, how close you can get it to real time, um, how well you can scale this within your telemetry systems. So if you're if you're struggling with a place to start and your organization is one that has fallen into the pattern of doing sprints and those kinds of things, it might be worthwhile to look at a sprint as an, as an initial candidate for your, for the window. So you can kind of look at how have we been doing since the last sprint started? That's a great idea. So how does this relate to error budgets? Error budgets are super fun. Error budgets help us measure and control the amount of risk that we have in play and help us make business decisions or technical decisions about how we can make a change, push new features, work on the stabilization, make our service better for our customers. When you have a service level objective that has a goal of 95% success rate, the other 5% is your error budget. Once you start your a given time window, once you start, you've used up none of your error budget, none of your goal budget. You're, you know, you've handled zero requests. You've done nothing. And as you proceed through that time window, you can, uh, by measuring your SLO, you also implicitly measure what your error budget is as you walk through that. So if you're, if you have a 95% SLO and you have a big outage on day number three of your 30 day window, does that use up all 5% of your allowable budget? Or maybe it's just two or 3% and you still make your SLO for that month. So we talk about SLOs and the number of nines for our goal the other side of that, the the 1%, the 0.1%, the 5% is how what what kind of errors we can handle before we trip our service level objective. So are you saying like if you were going to set up alerts around your SLOs, you would set up an alert on based on the error budget, not necessarily the the SLO and then comparing that to a, a percentile then? Jared, you ask advanced questions, <laughs> but you you cut to the chase. Uh, it's really easy to read the SRE workbooks, uh, handbooks from Google, and they're a great read. It's really refreshing to actually have some authoritative knowledge and professionalism and practice about the 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 profession that all of us are in that's so often and so long been kind of by the seat of your pants. Um, but it's easy to read that information and see the importance of SLOs and think they're the answer to everything. And really, good SLOs are actually really hard to measure and react on uh, in sort of an operational sense. You know, am I down now? What was the last hour like? Um, they're 
there's some problems there when you're, you know, looking at, did I make my goals for the last 30 days? Alerting based on error budgets is actually a really neat way to sort of flip that problem around and look at the rate at which you're burning through your error budget. Is that 10 times more than normal? Is that 20 times more than normal? And that can give you a pretty good indication of you're in danger of violating your SLO for the month, but we can foresee that problem, you know, within an an hour, within 30 minutes, rather than an SLO taking 30 days to, to go red on you or 28 days to go red on you. Also, one of my understandings of the the original pitch for doing SLOs instead of doing strict thresholds was you can then say, we've been chasing getting our latency for ingestion in this metrics pipeline or this logging pipeline down from 10 seconds to five seconds. And we've put all these these engineering hours into it but we've realized that we really don't care as long as it's under 15 seconds. So all that engineering time has been essentially wasted. And instead of working on new features or otherwise expanding the platform, you've been putting all of your time into chasing, you know, this ever shrinking window. You've made a really big error budget. And you don't need it. So having having a sane conversation about the business value of your SLOs and your SLAs, so you know why you're putting your engineering time towards various things. It helps, and this is again, this is my understanding of the part of the impetus of this in the beginning at Google, was you want to make sure that you're aligning your engineering resources with things that drive company value. And this is what makes SLO sort of codify the the DevOps mythology of practices, mythology. Ooh, somebody's going to comment on that one. Um. But SRE is an implementation of DevOps, if you will. And having to define your SLO really requires your developers to understand what they can do, your SRE team to understand, you know, how we can productionalize this, understanding from your from your customers about what's what's a bad experience for them, understanding of the goals that management wants to have, and being able to sort of figure that out enough to build an SLO that sort of represents those needs as, you know, what's good for performance. What's good for the business. And how do uh, histograms come into play with this? So the key part of, of calculating service level objectives that, look at that 95% of requests being below a certain threshold is using percentiles, which the, the, I use quantiles as sort of the generic term. And those, that mathematical operation is not the cheapest mathematical operation to do. You essentially, you take the entire list of latencies for every single request over the past 30 days, you sort them all, you hide a low, and you find the, to entering that list that represents, you know, 95%, 95% of that ordered list is below that list or smaller than that value. And that value you're looking at at the, the 95th, 
percent of that array of that list becomes the value at which you know ninety five percent of your requests are are lower than or faster than so that value becomes the the quantile for well, the the zero point nine five quantile of your thirty day latency and of course to calculate that you've got to have the entire list and things like latencies for API calls um, tend to be really super high velocity uh, sort of metric data. And Brendan, you might find this in, in Elk implementations, uh, HA proxy logs, Apache logs. Um, But using Elk to pick out that latency information and for 30 days worth of data depending on the amount of log traffic you have is probably really expensive in the terms of time to do the search and how fast you can repeat the search in order to alert on it. Yeah. For a logging tool to do that, remember that you essentially have to go and read all of the values because you're, you have to find all the values first. You can't summarize or estimate and then start building buckets in memory and trying to figure out how you're going to move things around. And it's a hideously expensive query. Hideously expensive. So one way to sort of look at this is you take this into the metrics space in your observability platform. Uh, metrics are going to be a whole lot cheaper to, to store, run, and query. But you still have that problem of you have really high-velocity data coming at your metric system but your metric system is designed to pull samples every 60 seconds or every 20 seconds or maybe every 10 seconds. But you've got a lot of events that occur inside that 10-second interval where you take samples. So a metrics platform depends on the client to build some sort of summary data type, uh, something called a sketch some way to summarize, you know, there have been uh, 500 Apache requests in the last 10 seconds. Here's the data on the latencies that I have for the metric system. And you're not handing so, over a list of 500 elements. Yeah, you're not handing over the raw list of data. Because if you only had 500 a second, that'd actually be fairly easy to do. Those are not impossible. But when you have more... Or you have to look back over larger and larger windows. So yeah, you end up tossing around an awful lot of data. Uh, it becomes hard to ingest that data and be able to alert on that data in real time. And pages are all about being alerted in real time because shit broke, yo. So how do uh, how do histograms sort of come into play this? Um, a really common sketch. Uh, for us to use in, in the metric space. And a sketch is a data structure that approximates a quantile. Um, usually that's tunable with some error, but it's some sort of algorithm that accepts real-time data and builds an estimate of that quantile without having to retain all of the real-time data. So you get the advantages of, you know, it's it's low in memory footprint, you can transfer it across the wire pretty quickly. 
Um, and usually in telemetry, that sketch is a histogram or something really close to a histogram, which, as Brendan mentioned earlier, is all about setting up several buckets, say, you know, a bucket that's zero milliseconds to 500 milliseconds, 500 milliseconds to 1,000 milliseconds, and a counter in each bucket that counts, you know, how many times the latency value was within, was in between those two thresholds. So it sounds to me like histograms are essentially a way of summarizing the data. How do you choose which data to summarize? Oh, well, of course, that depends on, you know, your SLO and stuff. Um, when you're starting out, when you're starting out for monitoring and doing telemetry work and looking at defining some SLOs, usually I point folks at either the four golden signals, which is espoused by our, our Google SRE overlords, um, the traffic you're doing, the latency, the errors that you're encountering, and the saturation or capacity of your infrastructure. And usually measuring those numbers, or perhaps the first three, which is actually based off of a, a previous uh, method called RED uh, for the rate of traffic, your errors, and your duration. Um, but that's usually where I point new people out that are sort of starting their SRE journey and of how to monitor, how to begin to, to instrument an application to build some basic alerts on. Ideally, you want to build goals and alerts around user experience. If the user can't get to your website, that's a great time to page somebody. If there's, you know, one single web server that's a little bit lagging behind the rest of the web servers, how much impact does that have on your total latency? Is that actually a pageable event? Does that consume your error budget? And so usually that's where I, I tell folks to sort of start with when they're starting this journey. The hard part is folks that have been on a monitoring journey, have a pile of alerts, are looking at transitioning to a more SLO-based uh, monitoring and alerting framework, and are trying to wrestle with, I've got all these alerts, Nagios looks like a Christmas tree, how do I sort of prune this down to a manageable level? Earlier when you were defining histograms, you mentioned a sketch and and, uh, and describing it, and it, it included a, uh, I believe you said error percentile or, or percent of error. So does that mean that there's a difference in various implementations of histograms? Error of histograms. Yes. And this is really this is really key to understand. This has been something that I've tried to stand on a soapbox and preach. Um and we're and where a lot of our metric systems that we have today really fall on their face. Um Including Prometheus? <laughs> Including our good friend, Prometheus. So percentiles are difficult to deal with. Let me go back. 
percentiles are what we term mathematically as robust measurement, which means they're not affected by outliers. So, you know, remember when you were back in grade school and you're getting your report card every six weeks and you're doing your spelling test and the teacher walked by and realized that you were cheating like crap on that spelling test and gave you a big fat goose egg and recovering from a zero in your list of test grades for your six week report is really hard because it's usually an incredible outlier to you know, compare toward the rest of the grades that you might have. And so it really drastically affects your, your six-week report card. That's why we tend to, to shy away from using averages to describe performance of a system. If we have a, an outlier event, the average is adversely affected. A robust measurement isn't affected by outliers, it helps describe where those outliers are. I have not completely answered the question. What was the question again? <laughs> it, basically, what's the difference between the various histogram implementations? Uh, and are oh, yes. there Sorry. drawbacks? Tangenting. The problem with percentiles as a robust measure of performance is what happens when you have a percentile of performance from machine A and a percentile of performance from machine B. Once you've calculated those, those, those percentiles or those quantiles, there's not a mathematical operation you can do to aggregate them. What you have to do is go back to the raw data, merge the lists together, sort the list, and recalculate the quantile. And that's, that's a mistake that a lot of people make when they uh, start going down this field of, of SLOs and percentiles is their percentiles are not mathematically correct and they wiggle. They look like real data, but you're making business decisions based off of you gaslighting yourself. This is one of the few places that having the expensive log query to build your latency me me measurement is actually really helpful because the log query is looking at all of the data by definition. And you can take that, that data, you can build a report out of elk, you know, it may take, you know, five minutes to sort of, you know, render everything out. But if that report doesn't match your SLO based metrics, then you know, you have a problem. So why is this impactful? And why do we use histograms? We can calculate estimations of quantiles from a histogram or a similar sketch. So that makes histograms a robust measure of performance because we can calculate, we can build these robust uh, um, percentiles off of them. However, histograms are also aggregatable, which means you can take histogram from machine A and histogram from machine B, add the histograms together and get a, and calculate a global estimate of your quantile which makes histograms really uniquely powerful since they're usually pretty small to pass around and store in a telemetry system, but they can give us, they can give us accurate uh, approximations of what our percentiles look like. And I, I can like, is important. But it's a, I feel like there's a, there's a big, but coming here. This is, this is not a yes. And this is, this is the other one. <laughs> and, 
I remember when I first figured out histograms and how powerful they can be. And, you know, well, everything's got to be histogram, right? And we just put histograms in everywhere. Well, if you don't understand how error is controlled in those approximations, then you're you're going to build a bad histogram. And that is the sort of crux of the information or crux of the issue with Prometheus, dare I say Victoria metrics, um, several of the telemetry tools that implement histograms. They all aren't equal. And Prometheus in particularly is especially bad. So when you say especially bad, we're, and we're talking about, you know, how, how much error or how much. So controlling your error in a histogram relates to how many buckets you have in your histogram and how big the buckets are, how they're spaced apart. Prometheus has a default um, histogram object that's 10 or 13 buckets, I think, usually aimed at at sort of HTTP uh, latencies. Um, but that doesn't give us great accuracy. And since you can define your own bucketing scheme when you're instrumenting your code, um, it's really easy to just kind of hammer out, you know, 15 or so buckets new by hand and you know, you're a developer you're going to think of some good values that tend to reflect the range that that your data is going to be in um but that too is not going to give you good accuracy in your prometheus um quantile estimations um i talked to uh i attended a talk uh from apple at monitorama uh, a year or two ago and i talked to the presenter a couple times because um, it turns out we've sort of been on part of the same quest. And in his study of comparing the histogram implementation, that's Prometheus's default, that the uh, Java client-side library for Prometheus sets up for you, it has a few different options about bucketing. He discovered that by default, you're probably looking at about a 200% error range. And... That's just not cool. That's significant. That's that's not cool. And is that due to the bucket size? And yeah, that's due to the bucket size, not having enough buckets. Our tendency to, as humans, to put more buckets where we think our data is going to be, but we're really interested in like the 95th, the 99th quantile that describe the tail and as humans, we tend to put more buckets where we think the data is going to be and less buckets at the edges, which makes our quantile estimation of things out on the edge even less accurate. So if I were to offer a, a bad example of this, let's say you're looking at the speed of cars on the highway going past a particular point, And you figure that the posted speed on the highway is 65 miles an hour. And the buckets you're going to assign are, I don't know, a couple miles an hour spaced right around that 65 mile an hour speed limit, thinking that most people will be traveling on or about that speed. What you don't get, and then you figure out, well, there's going to be people who are speeding a lot. And so you put a bunch up at, say, 90 miles an hour. What you miss is 
the person is doing 25 miles an hour. And you, depending on how the math falls out, you've got you know, a cluster of people going a little faster than 65. You've got a small cluster of, of you know crazy people that are going 95. And your 90th or 95th uh, percentile might kind of fall you know, in the 80s or 70s. And where you where you're not expecting a lot of traffic, so you've got few buckets. So your estimation of where exactly that that quantile falls could be really far away from the actual value. So is the answer just to add more buckets? That was my first thought, and I've actually blogged a couple times about uh, some different algorithms to make Prometheus's histograms better. And of course, the first attempt is there are known algorithms for pre-generating uh, buckets for histograms that give uh, much more acceptable errors. And basically, if if you're if you're having to hand create your uh, buckets for your histogram, it's not going to be accurate. If you're not dealing with an algorithm that generates whose buckets for you, um, you're going to have you're going to have a bad time. Uh, but there are several algorithms to generate those bucket boundaries for you in a way that's that's has some scientific rigor uh, to them. And I implemented a couple of those um, with the Prometheus client library. And of course, the problem is to have a reasonably accurate histogram, you end up looking at, you know, 300, 400, 500 uh, buckets in your histogram and okay for you know one histogram about latency we could wing that in prometheus but the problem comes into well you've got a, a histogram about latency there's a histogram about download sizes there's a histogram about this you've added a histogram for about that and suddenly http status codes gotten so <laughs> yeah and let's add the http status code as a label and suddenly you've got more 500 bucket histograms and you can shake a stick at and your Prometheus server is, is crying on the floor in pain. <laughs> Cardinality. What's a couple and, hundred million metrics between friends? Come on. I know. I know. That's, that's really is the question of the day, isn't it? But that is why Prometheus. That is why Prometheus suggests and really gives you strong defaults and really does take several steps to ensure that you can use a histogram, but your histograms are going to have pretty few buckets unless you really work against it. So basically, um, what you can do with Prometheus histograms is you tell your application uh, what the threshold is on your SLO. So, you know, your latency of, of two seconds is your definition of, you know, what's a good time. And so your application uses that parameter as it's building up its uh, histogram types that it exports to Prometheus and make sure that, that two seconds or 200 milliseconds or whatever is a boundary, uh, as a bucket boundary in the histogram. That gives us the ability to figure out what percentage of our traffic is beneath 
two per, uh, two seconds and what percentage is above two seconds. And that calculation is really fairly accurate. So you can say, okay, there's 73% traffic. So essentially, if you were to accidentally have your SLA or SLO numbers land in the middle of a bucket, when you're looking at the histogram later, you never actually know which side of the SLO line you were on because it could be anywhere inside that bucket. So aligning your bucket theory, boundary yes. to what your desired measurement is for for good versus not good, it allows you to be very precise because that's one of the benefits of histograms is that it gives you precision at bucket boundaries. Yes, you you can no longer calculate what your 95th percentile is, but you can calculate what percentile or quantile falls at the two-second mark. So it might be 98. It might be 75%. But if that number, if that percentage number goes above your goal of 95%, then you know you have a, a an SLO violation. Do you have to do the same process with other uh, metric systems or monitoring systems such as uh, Victoria Metrics you mentioned before or some others? So let me tell you how to fix Prometheus first. Since if you're following Prometheus's best practice, your application already knows about your SLO threshold, my suggestion, especially at scale, is for folks not to use Prometheus's histograms and instead export a series of counters, the total number of hits you've had, the total number of hits that resulted in an error, the number of hits that took longer than your SLO threshold to process, more than two seconds. And with that information, you can do some ratio math and also over a 12-hour, a 24-hour, 30-day time window, um, you can start to build those ratios and use those ratios as your percentile. The math is a lot less expensive. You're not dealing with the fallacies of the histogram. Uh, you can't fall into trusting Prometheus's histogram approximations um, later because somebody decided to try something different and end up not with accurate numbers. So using those those three counters, total hits, error hits, number of hits that took longer than two seconds to process, um, turns out to be a really powerful sort of workaround um, with Prometheus to figure out what your uh, performance metrics, what your SLOs can be. So that's been uh, what I've been suggesting to folks that use Prometheus because unfortunately to improve the accuracy that's about the only real option you have there's been various talk about improving histograms with prometheus and i just don't see a lot of movement in the prometheus community um especially since any meaningful uh, improvement with that metric data type would require a lot of of changes both in the client side libraries and in prometheus um, so, you know, you're you're talking a 3x uh, a version at least and breaking backwards compatibility. And yeah, I, I understand the rock and the hard place. The Prometheus community is there. 
is in there. Um, Victoria metrics, um, which also accepts Prometheus metrics, is a really strong competitor to what Prometheus can do and some things that Prometheus can't do. They have extended PromQL. They have extended their version of the Prometheus client-side library to implement a Victoria metrics histogram uh, data structure. And basically what they've done is they've added in an automatic bucketing algorithm. So you just observe data. You don't have to worry about buckets. And that's, that's like 80% of the battle. Um, so their histogram implementation is actually quite a bit better than what we get with Prometheus. Of course, you have to use their client-side library and Victoria metrics to handle the PromQL to actually parse and understand and get the benefit. Um, let me check my notes. Um, so actually, I have so, a stupid question for you before we get too much further into this. If you have histograms with differing bucket sizes, can you still portably do math comparing the two sets of histograms? Poorly. So the more differences in the bucket sizes, the worse the math is going to, the, the worse resolution you get? Ideally, it's not super smart to aggregate histograms unless the bucket schema, the bucketing matches. Okay. That makes sense. I just wanted to double check that. If the buckets that. don't match, you know, sometimes you can fake it a little bit. You merge in more accurate histogram with a less accurate histogram. Um, but it gets messy and usually less accurate and unfun. Okay. So with Prometheus, it doesn't provide us a lot of control over error. So basically the maximum estimation error for a Prometheus traditional histogram is basically unbounded. Um, with Victoria metrics, they've auto bucketed things, but they've also had to deal with um, building in an auto bucketing scheme, which creates more time series versus, you know, how many time series can a Victoria metric scale to? Um, so they take an approach, or I believe they put 18 evenly spaced buckets in each order of magnitude. So between 1 and 10, that space is divided up into 18 buckets. Which, working through the math, the worst case estimation error um, is between the bucket that starts at 1 and ends at 1.5, and the worst case there is going to be a 50% estimation error. Um, that's a little contrived. So probably in normal usage, you're probably looking at, you know, 15, 20, 10 error in that kind of range, which isn't horrible. It gives you good ideas, but I think we can do better. And uh, how would we do better? By reinventing the internet. Just turn it off and back on again. <laughs> I always point to the folks at Circonus for being superheroes in this space. Um, their log linear uh, histogram implementation, which is really similar to HDR histograms, 
is just really spot on. They did the math and the research to know what data structure they needed for this kind of data, a histogram, and how to build that histogram so it's mathematically accurate. Um, they use a log linear style of histograms, which basically within each order of magnitude, there are 90 some buckets. I didn't have this right in front of me, but I think there are like 90 some buckets per each order of magnitude, which clearly is a lot more than uh, what Victoria Metrics is doing. How do they not uh, get eaten alive by storage space then? They don't store unused buckets. Ooh. And it's a, it's a different problem space than Prometheus, which, you know, expects the client to always export the same time series. Circonus takes, you know, samples for a minute, builds that into a histogram, and then starts over again. So just because you had a, a bucket that had data points in it an hour ago doesn't mean that bucket is still used right now. So their model is a little different. Um, but it's really super spot on um, because of the number of their buckets they're using and the pattern they're using in the maximum estimation error. If you contrive it and beat on it left, right and sideways is 5%. And what helps with this is that they've the, when you, when you know your quantile point is in a specific bucket, you can sort of, interop uh, uh, estimate across that bucket to figure how far into that bucket the histogram the the quantile point is and you can model the probabilities of where it falls within that bucket and circonus actually uses a a beta distribution of where data falls in that bucket which also significantly narrows down the chance of of error in its estimation. So worst case is 5% in common practice. You're seeing about one or 2% um, error um, in optimal situations. You're seeing, you know, significantly less than 1% error. So that's always been kind of my reference implementation that I've kind of looked for to, yeah, we can solve this problem and we can do it better. Are there other implementations that people should be aware of and look at? One of the other uh, SaaS solutions, um, which Circonus is, of course, that I recommend to folks is Wavefront. Um, they are some ex-Google employees that want to take some of the special Google sauce about doing time series and good metric quality measurement since percentiles and quantiles underpin so much of our performance measurement. Um, they wanted to take that and build a service out of it. And they did. They use a sketch called a T digest. And Brendan, let's put a link to the T digest um, PDF in the notes. Absolutely. Um, this is a really modern and robust uh, algorithm that looks a lot like uh, k-means clustering. Um, if you squint hard, it kind of looks like a histogram as well, where you take the average of a bucket and how many data points are in that bucket. And you that's 
um, a sample and you have several of those sort of tied together in a list and that's a T-digest. Now, there's some there's a bit more math behind how you figure out how to build that structure and how the buckets can be how how the buckets relate to each other. And the key is that we create more buckets in the outlying areas in the you know 5%, 2%, 1% percentiles and in the 95s and 98s and 99 percentiles rather than buckets in the middle. So we trade a little accuracy on the median, the 50th percentile, to get better accuracy on the estimations we're really interested in, the ones at the extremes. So that's a really sort of interesting uh, data structure that I've been looking at recently. And one of the reasons I've recommended Wavefront, because they really know what they're doing here, and is something I would like to see more open source uh, metrics telemetry options for. Because, well, it's an open source algorithm. Anyone can look at the PDF and implement it. This to me feels much like the gorilla paper that was talking about storage efficiencies for time series and having a kind of an, an open paper that summed up a lot of the advances that have been, that have been made in an open and friendly manner. Is that a fair representation of this, but in turn, but instead about histograms, instead of about on disk storage, you're not off the mark. And really sort of my thoughts of late as I've kind of been digging into this because, you know, it's COVID season. I'm bored. What else have we got to do? Um, is the data in the TGI just isn't very different from the, the data patterns described in the gorilla paper. Could we combine these techniques to store T-digests in an efficient manner. And in reality, when you take time series, even just you know, simple counters and gauges, and you want to, to store those over time to make a long-term storage solution, you have to do some sort of roll-up. Uh, Thanos does this. Um, most projects do this in some way to make better use of your storage space rather than storing all of the raw data forever. And really, what is a roll-up? But it's a statistical model of of the data points that make up a minute of time or an hour of time or a day of time. And if you're looking at building um, a statistical model about that data in those time intervals, why doesn't T-Digests you know, work for that? You've got min and max in the T-Digest. You've got averages. You can estimate uh, percentiles and medians. Um, so you've got most of the data that you would store in a roll-up encoded in that T-Digest format. And it's just kind of an interesting idea in my head of, I wonder if we could write some code to combine all that and sort of build a next-generation uh, metrics architecture. But it depends on how bored I am. If any angel investors are listening to this podcast. Hey. So getting out of the, the gory details, there is there's a handful of takeaways that I'm really interested that folks can can sort of take away from. Uh, uh, 
can leave this podcast with. SLO-based alerting gives you a couple, several really valuable uh, techniques, really valuable items that can really improve your business. First of all, look at alerting off of error budgets. That's going to save you some some pain. Um, Another podcast, perhaps. But your error budgets or your SLO-based alerting gives you easy information about the availability, the performance, the capacity of your service. That's something that every service in your microarchitecture should alert on and export. So any engineer can look at any different service and come up to speed with how it's performing. As well as anyone in the management or, or C-level suite or really anyone in the business that needs to figure out, I depend on five microservices how do I tell the, how do I give good estimates about what my performance is going to be based on my five dependencies? So really that wraps up a lot of, of your alerts look similar across the board. You get real business value out of your metrics rather than just that expensive black hole that the developers have to have. You build this visual method of continuous improvement that any one of your your agile folks can come by and help you build on top of and continue that that culture of continuous improvement because you measure it. And one thing that is really a clear line for me, if it's an SLO it's or, or an error budget alert, that means this is an important alert. It's focused on the experience our users have if, you know, that goes south, you want to page somebody. That really sort of defines what is a pageable event. You can have other alerts. I am not arguing that you should ditch all of your alerts. But all of the rest of the stuff is either A, unused, or B, low-priority stuff. Stuff you don't wake people up for. Stuff that you come in Monday morning, check your dashboards, and see... Oh, okay, well, well, server B is running a little slow. Why don't we take that out of the pool and recycle it? Um, so that, to me, is a really good line of, of the value that SLOs give you um, and help you handle your pager duty cycle. Yeah, I, I really like the concept of error budgets. That's uh, pretty cool. And I like the fact that it's it builds in the business value. A, a lot of the errors... A lot of the alerts that we see are based on errors that somebody saw once and don't have a direct correlation to a particularly valuable part of the business. But when you have an SLO or an SLA, you actually know and you've demonstrated via other means that this is important. So it's kind of for free getting sensible alerts. And I like that. I I really like how it is a natural filter for what is a sensible, pageable alert. We would like to thank 42 Lines for sponsoring this episode. 42 Lines is a DevOps consulting firm specializing in observability, cloud migrations, service reliability engineering, cost control, security practices, and team mentoring. Kickstart your SRE journey today with the experts at 42lines.net. Please take the time to rate this show in Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. It's the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, We welcome feedback about the shows we've recorded or topics you would like us to cover. 
Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm or send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm. And that wraps it up for this episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. Thanks, and good night. Sum your rates, don't rate your sums. What?